So before we start, just just to remind you people uh, where the bathrooms are, so I don't have any trouble. They're over there. Okay. Uh, we're going to start with the band tonight. We had a little trouble earlier this afternoon. I guess maybe last night they had their uh, equipment band stolen. It's not such a nice way to invite people to Cambridge, but uh, if anybody sees a yellow rider van with a lot of equipment in it, please ask if it belongs to Big Star. But uh, we've managed to scan them. Some instruments and the show must go on. I think you're gonna enjoy it. From uh, Memphis, Tennessee, ardent recording artist, Big Stars. Have a nice welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. John Fry founded Ardent Records in 1959. Fry assembled his first attempt at a recording studio in his family's garage, but moved the operation to a professional location in 1966. In 1971, two young songwriters who met at Ardent Studios, Alex Chilton and Chris Bell, teamed up. Each sang and played guitar. Chilton had been the frontman for the Box Tops, who had a number one hit in 1967, when Chilton was 16. Chilton invited Bell to form a Simon and Garfunkel-type duo. Instead, Bell suggested that Chilton just join his band, Icewater, with bassist Andy Hummel and drummer Jody Stevens. The rather tragic story that followed is relatively well known. Big Star released two albums with Ardent Records in 1972 and 1973, the second without Chris Bell, who, depressed and erratic, quit the band more than once. A third eccentric album was recorded in 1974 by just Chilton and Stevens, along with an array of guest musicians, but went unreleased until 1978, by which time Big Star was no more. But 1978 was the same year that the first two albums were reissued as a double record set in the UK, and the Big Star legend continued to build. Unfortunately, 1978 was also the year that Chris Bell was killed in a car accident, two days after Christmas. The Big Star story has been well told by others, including an excellent book by Rob Jovanovic. But on this episode of the podcast, you'll get to hear from a few people who were there and bore witness to the original Big Star. First, Big Star drummer Jody Stevens, the only surviving original member. Then, rock journalist and musician John Tiven. And after that, Big Star's Memphis contemporary, songwriter Van Duren. The record, it wasn't very successful at first, right? Not a lot of people knew about it, right? Right, yeah. I, uh, John King got it to, you know, a lot of great writers. Bud Scapa being one. Well, John Tiven, Danny Goldberg, uh, Cameron Crowe, Lester Bangs. 
Right. Uh, Richard Meltzer. I, I mean, just a lot of these iconic music writers, and, and uh, they liked it. So, I mean, they're the guys that, uh, I mean, King planted the seed with them, and, and, and they kind of helped it along in a big way because they'd talk about us. They, they wrote about us, and then they would talk about us when bands came up that, uh, you know, we shared a similar sound with. So, Yeah, you were, you were like the critic's darling kind of thing. We were lucky. I mean, outside of John Fry and, and John King, and once the record got done, it was, it was the rock writers that really were the catalyst to everything else happening. Did it feel like, in 1972, did it feel like being in Big Star was different or special? Like, did it, like, were Big Star almost like an alternative band of their day? You know what I mean? I think we were just, I don't know that any of, any of us ever tried to put a label on it. We just were doing what we loved to do and uh, kind of passing along influences of our own. You know, because we were all huge Beatles fans and, and, and Big Bad Finger and, and Kinks and Rolling St- I was a Rolling Stones fan, uh, Charlie Watts, and uh, we were all into Stax as well. And, uh, you know, Al Jackson, I'm a big fan of, and lot, lots of different folks that uh, filled Led Zeppelin. You know, Terry Manning mixed Led Zeppelin three at Ardent Studios over a national because he had befriended Paige in, in in Kentucky, in Murray, Kentucky, I think, when Jimmy was in the Yardbirds. I think Terry was in a band uh, called the Goat Dancers that was on the same bill. I was a big Led Zeppelin fan, too, kind of outside of that, cause, but uh, I think Chris and Terry kind of hung with Jimmy Page for a minute after the show, after they played here in Memphis, and and, you know, in the street, and, and there's several other things that uh, kind of reflect, especially, well, Led Zeppelin's influence on Chris. And so we had a lot of, you know, kind, kind of diverse interest in, in music, but I, I think we were all kind of engaged by the British, by the British invasion initially. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it, but Led Zeppelin three, it was so different from the first two records, and it's interesting to think about that record alone being influential at the time because they incorporated acoustic instruments and folk, kind of folk style songs and stuff like that that they hadn't really done on the first two records. Right. Yeah. So it's cool that. Terry had that relationship and, you know, apparently still has a uh, relationship with Paige. And, and it's, uh, uh, and you mentioned Badfinger, because if you think about, you know, at the time Big Star came out, there, there really weren't a lot of bands that were similar, were that similar. And Badfinger is definitely one of the more similar bands of the time period. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, I mean, I guess the Raspberries would be one. Yeah. Uh, but we were we were more of a rock and roll band, and they were more of a pop band, I think. Right. I mean, I don't... I, I love the Raspberries. Yeah. Love the drum yeah. sound. Uh, love the guitar sound sonically. It's interesting, because all these, these bands seem to have their own sonic imprint that just is, is engaging, 
you know, aside from the songs and who, whoever's behind the board and whoever the producer is and, of course, the players. But uh, it all makes a difference. And it's and and Big Star, of course, you have the compete kind of the competing personalities of Alex Chilton and Chris Bell as like the the driving forces and behind the songwriting, right? How how different? Yeah, I don't. They they weren't competing. Yeah, they just uh, you know they had uh, personalities of their own that that uh, meshed really well uh, when they came together. And I think, you know, they were like Lennon and McCartney. They'd each have an idea for a song and, and you know, might bring it in fully realized or, or not. Then the two of them would sit down and finish it. And then Chris, you know, was he was the primary kind of... He, had, he was the primary visionary for uh, the production of the Big Star's first record. Of course, you know, Alex... Uh, pl- played a big role too, and Andy, uh, and certainly John Fry, in, in terms of the way those records sound sonically and the way they're mixed. So you said Chris was like a was really important to the sound to the production of the first record. Yes, he he had a pretty clear vision of what he wanted. Like he was he had what he what he knew what he wanted the record to sound like in his head. And he was working to get that on tape. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he, we were all fortunate enough to have John Fry behind the console. Yeah. Because he was he, he, he's the guy that made it sparkle. Right. I'm. I wonder if if you remember kind of the progression in in terms of the the band becoming more widely known among people like my. I know that the records were reissued in the late 70s and then in the 80s you have like the Bangles do September Girls and Paul Westerberg does Alex Chilton but was it really when that CD came out in the early 90s that it really started to to become much more widely known do you remember you know how it grew over the years Yeah well my first inclination that that we had some sort of impact was was Mike Mills and Peter Buck talking about Big Star in the 80s. Uh, well, actually, you know, b- back up a little bit, because I, I spent two and a half months in London in 78, where, you know, the British pr- press liked us, and, and, uh, but Alex was still kind of popping up in the press, and people were looking for Big Star records, and, and, uh, and EMI reissued our first two albums as a double album, you know, double vinyl record, and so there seemed to have ran into Nick Kent, who's a kind of an was an iconic, uh, you know, British music writer, and he already had bootleg copies of our third record because it hadn't come out. It was just coming out in England on on a record label, but he already had a bootleg copy, and he also had a bootleg copy of our live broadcast, the WLIR broadcast that Alex and John Lightman and I did. So I thought, well, you know. That's some indication that it reached people and, and just struck a chord. So maybe it backs up to 78, but, but certainly rock writers kind of gave it a, a larger voice and, and bigger platform as, and then for Mike Mills and Peter Buck to, to talk about us and, and uh, which is cool. That, that's one of the pleasures of having been in big stars is, is that 
I get to play and perform with Mike Mills and this Big Stars Third Live thing, and, and a lot of folks I get to interact with that I'm a huge fan of. So that's cool. Bobby Gillespie of Primal Scream. There are a bunch of folks. This Mortal Coil covering Big Stars songs. Bangles, certainly. Interestingly enough, well, and of course the replacements, uh, and people like Matthew Sweet talking about the band. We were lucky that we connected with with all these pretty cool people and, and they talked about us. Yeah, I mean, I didn't hear Big Star until I was in college in the 90s and a friend, you know, had that CD that of the first two records. It seemed like that was a, that was a big part of spreading because in the 80s, people just couldn't find the records, right? To even be able to hear them. Right. I'm not sure when that, when Concord reissued the uh, first two albums as a, I think they did it on a single CD initially. Yeah, yeah. And they left out a, they left out a couple of songs. Right. And then they kind of reissued various versions of those records. But really, I mean, you really should check out the latest. The two singles, you know, pressings, and Concord put a lot of thought and care into it, and, and certainly bringing Jeff Powell into it. Who I have, you know, ardent and and I have a personal connection with, and uh, it because it really does sound amazing. I hate to keep coming back to that, but you know, if if that music makes a connection, it's uh, those reissues are, are, are probably the best way to experience it. Yeah, it's cool that you're excited about them. That's I like, that's great. Um, do you specifically remember? the the origin of the song September Girls uh, when at when you first heard that song or anything about Alex writing it it was about a particular girl here in town but other than that it was just it was just an incredible song yeah with a with an intro that just got me excited uh, and and kind of established the energy of, of what was going to happen in that song. Certainly his performance on guitar and his guitar and his settings and his amp and, and, and the, that kind of declaration in, in the way he plays that intro. and, and uh, But then John Fry capturing it the way he did. And um, it's, you just don't get in the way of something. You don't process it or you don't EQ it. You don't do anything but you just let that that sound be as pure as it can be and i'm and i'm not saying that's that's probably what happened i'm thinking john fry just getting out of the way of it and and uh but capturing it on tape and and uh you know in such an incredible way yeah that song's kind of a template for a lot of what became known as power pop later on you know Right, yeah. Did it feel like it was ahead of its time at the time? Or I guess... I, uh, I just thought it was a great song. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't really think much about things outside, just the immediate musical experience. There was a lot going on. I was in school, and Andy was in school, and we all had girlfriends. And, and when you said, did I think it was anything special... 
earlier, and I probably didn't answer that. Uh, it was a it was a special experience to me. I was just so taken with what those guys were writing and and how they played their instruments. And you know, after we did number one record, and we had all the four of us get in a room, it even actually before that, when the four of us got together, this there was this energy there that uh, was certainly greater than the sum of the parts. That that's what makes the best bands, right? It has to, there has to be that chemistry. Yeah, it was uh, it was there indeed. It was so cool, just being a part of that band, and and con- it continues to be really cool to be a part of things like Big Stars Third because it's an even much bigger sort of bonding experience and and. Uh, if you will, gang experience. You know, everybody wants to belong to something, and I got lucky that I belonged to Big Star and, and I belonged to, to, well, now with Luther, Russell, and those pretty wrongs and the experiences that come from that and what happens when Luther and I get together. But certainly Big Star's third live, is it, it's an amazing experience. Were you around when Chris was writing and recording I Am The Cosmos? I played on a few songs. There's a... Uh, Getaway, uh, the version of the song with slap back on the drums, and I think three other songs. Richard Groseborough pointed out that I played on those because I had kind of it seems like I remembered one of them, but I didn't remember having played on the others. I mean, you know, Richard played on all the Richard Groseborough on drums was he added this profound depth to what Chris was doing just through his tempo and how he felt his way through those songs. He, uh, he was an amazing drummer. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily licks. It was just the way he felt his way through a song and enhanced whatever Chris was singing and playing about. And right. Speaking of Richard, you know, you know Richard played on uh, She's a Mover and Modlang and uh, She's a Mover, Modlang and What's Going On on, on Radio City. Right. Um, yeah, what's going on is it's it's that tempo that that Richard. You know, he just adds this depth of uh, melancholy to it with that the tempo and and the way he plays that song. But anyway, we tried we tried to re-record those songs, but we couldn't quite capture what they did. You tried to record when you were making Radio City? You tried to re-record? Yeah, we tried to Yeah. Yeah. And it just didn't work. So it had kind of the whole I mean, band, before Radio City, had the whole band broken up? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, not, a, not there wasn't an official statement, you know, we had we broken up. And the reason we got back together was because John King was putting that Rock Writers uh convention together so to speak and and uh, he came to us and said you know asked us to play that the writers were asking us to play so uh and john king talked to alex about it and alex uh agreed and so we all got back together and, and played that date which was pretty amazing because you know they there was a free bar there were there were probably recreational drugs so people were just nuts it was just, you know, the whole convention, I think, was one big party. They made a good impression on us, and I guess we made a good impression on them. And 
so we all, Andy and Alex and I kind of came back together to do Radio City. So have you have you heard the term power pop a lot over the years? Like, uh, what, what do you think of that of that term and that genre and and where Big Star fit fit into it? Well, you know, genres like that. I mean, they do serve a purpose because it puts you in the ballpark of what a band sounds like. Th- that kind of melodic rock with a little grit behind it um, has its own little bar- ballpark and all, its own little different kinds of players. And I think one thing that set Big Star apart, how both Alex and Chris had these had, had this built-in sort of melancholy to their voices. I, you know, it just added a bit of, of uh, a bit of darkness to it. I think that uh, a lot of power pop didn't have. It doesn't mean it was bad. It just means that uh, it was it was a bit lighter and and uh, and how it came across emotionally. That that's a really good point. That I know exactly what you mean about the melancholy in their voices, and. Uh of both of them <laughs> it's very true and yeah a lot of power pop is much more much brighter and more upbeat you know i think i think september girls is the closest song to what came came to be called power pop later on but right. of course the thing that happens in between big star and later power pop is punk rock i think that was a big part of like the tempo and the energy of power pop was a, a lot of those guys either were in punk bands or were at least influenced by by punk right sure and yes yeah, so i've i've never quite i mean i understand that uh, of course especially at that time period in the late 70s and and the 80s the majority of big star fans were other guys who were in bands because they were the guys that sought out sought out the stuff that wasn't that was beneath the surface you know they were right normally, normally the biggest music fans are also the musicians and the guys in bands so it makes right. sense that yeah, those were the people that knew about big star you know sure i agree with you but at the same time it it's it's hard you know big star is still is a, is a very seventies rock sounding, especially the first record. I guess I don't hear a lot. I I guess it's more like I said. Big Star were kind of an alternative band for their time. I guess because, like I'm saying, the the people that knew about Big Star were more the nerds, you know. Sure, and for me, alternative music was just anything that wasn't being played on mainstream radio <laughs> right that that didn't fit that you know particular format but yeah like you said about the melancholy in their voices and you kind of have this more cerebral i guess nature to it it feels more it feels different i think because it's more serious or something like that yeah i mean just through the nature of the way they would deliver i mean yeah you know their experiences experience has everything and to do everything in the world to do with how somebody delivers a vocal and and then there's just some sort of natural thing that goes on that that could be shaped by those experiences but whatever it was there was where there was there were all kinds of things even even 
happier stuff had sad overtones to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alex and Chris were both pretty complex personalities, right? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And that definitely comes and, across, yeah. yeah. Andy Humlin in his own way, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think um, definitely not as much so as Chris and, and Alex. You know, I felt so incredibly lucky to be there. And, you know, I was a, I was a pretty insecure kind of guy. So I, I walked a, a pretty straight line. Well, still do, just because it's life's less complicated that way. <laughs> kind of, you know, it, it has its own challenges it, just naturally without me bringing them on or inviting them in. It uh, so that's and you know Andy, Andy was pretty focused guy. Uh, I mean the whole reason Andy left Big Star was because Andy, you know, was looking ahead in life and looking to have a career, and it looked like he couldn't make music, make a career out of music. So he kind of dropped out of that, at, at least in a professional kind of pursuit sort of sense, and got. You know, went back to it was Southwestern College then, and got his degree, and and then went on to mechanical engineering school and got his associate's degree there, and you know got a full time job, and then went on to get his master's in finance. I think uh, he can he continued to play music, but he was for some reason I think all that makes him less complicated, although he was quirky. <laughs> but right. I mean I Andy and I go back I was in the seventh eighth grade when I first met Andy mm -hmm. um, I lived out in East Memphis and he lived in Mad Midtown and we had a uh, shared a mutual friend Mike Fleming and uh, you know it's funny how a single person can have such, have such a profound effect or outcome on what your life's going to be and, and Mike Fleming was mine in introducing me to Andy but um, all those years, and uh, um, you know, I forgot where I was going with that, but I, I guess I was just kind of sort of reminiscing. No, yeah, it's great. Um, I guess the the last thing I was thinking to ask you is, could you have even imagined at the time how, that this was going to become one of the most legendary bands <laughs> ever? <laughs> you know how the I mean, the the big star legend. I mean, that's kind of a way to this a perfect way to describe it. You know, you know what's exciting about that is it's such a common denominator in opening the door to meeting people and having these kind of talks like I'm having with you. And um, when we uh, when Luther and I uh, we were lucky enough to get a UK tour in uh, back in November. And uh, we we did nine dates, and five of which opening for the lines. But we had places to stay because I let's see, interesting. Uh, just because of uh, my big store experiences, we had a place to stay in Glasgow. We had a place to stay in Manchester. Yeah. Um, and we had uh, I have some really good friends in London that we stayed with for three nights. Um, so 
I, you know, people are generous in opening their doors to us. We couldn't, we couldn't have afforded to do that tour uh, without the help of all these people and big star fans out there. Tony Yale at uh, at the Flying Circus in Newark, to, you know, outside of Nottingham, and even even the folks that booked us in uh, it's it's outside of uh, in Scotland. Uh, it's East Linton, uh, but it's outside of Edinburgh. I mean, those guys, it, that kind of made it possible. Um, so at any rate, it's, it's the fact that I get to keep doing this and, uh, you know, it's not like we make money. We kind of break even, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty amazing thing to do in this day and age. Uh, but it's because we have friends, we have connections and, and, and it, you know, fairly it's why how we got to open the lot for the lines was Luther, uh, Russell and, and his connections and uh, so it's it's exciting I think for us both that uh, what we did earlier in our lives makes uh, being able to continue playing music possible right and it's just fun you know the first thing I tell people when you know <clears throat> when they're pursuing music is you do it for the fun of it if something happens, that's great. If it doesn't, you're having fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have a you have a worldwide community. Is what you're saying, you know? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Alrighty, take care. All right, thanks, Stay. Jody. Okay, yeah, bye. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on getting real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. 
works. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business. And I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Well, you were kind of there at ground zero, considering that, you know, you were working with Chris Bell and Alex Chilton in, what, 1975? Yeah. And so, at that point, in 75, not very many people even knew about Big Star, right? No, it was was a real uh, challenge for me to get anybody interested in, uh, in an Alex Chilton solo record, or nobody was extolling their virtues except for a very small group of people. Yeah. So how did you find out about Big Star back then? Well, I was a journalist initially. Um, I wrote for, uh, you know, Rolling Stone and Fusion and right. Phonograph Records. And, and uh, the guy from who was doing uh, promotion, radio promotion for... Uh, Stax Records came into WYBC one day uh, and I was hanging out there because that's what I would do with like disc jockey friends and stuff and he had a whole bunch of records and one of the records he had was number one record the first big star record and I had already gotten a copy of that at home 
and I liked it, but I didn't know, you know, necessarily what to do with it or who, who I could review it for or anything like that. And, uh, he was very encouraging, you know, that, you know, these guys are really good. And if, uh, if you did anything, wrote anything about them, you know, they would, they would definitely take notice of it. You wouldn't, you would be like a, uh, you know, you would be one of the one of the few people who were extolling the virtues. I said, "Well, it's a, it's a really good record." So I didn't know that I could do more than just give it a review. But that's how I started uh, by reviewing it for Fusion Magazine, and then uh, I I heard from the people at Art and Records because they were really excited about the review that I had written, and uh, they flew me down to Memphis and flew me out to San Francisco for a Bill Gavin convention because they, they just wanted to, you know, it was sort of unusual that I was, uh, one of the youngest, uh, critics writing about music. They like that. And the fact that, you know, I like their, their artists, you know, they like that a lot too. So they wanted to adopt me. So they did, you know, more or less. So that was that was John King and John Fry. They thought I was uh, I had something going, and they they wanted they wanted to get close to it and see, you know, if they could, uh, you know, get me to do more about Big Star and the other acts they had on their label. But I wasn't really that interested in the other the other artists they had. Um, that's how that got started. Do you think that? The the guys at Art knew they had something special, and they were just kind of desperate to get the word out to, you know, clue people in to what was well, going on. I think they were very aware of the fact that they they had some really talented people in the band. I don't think they envisioned, you know, there was there was no sort of genre for them for Big Star to fall into. You know, like right right around then they were. You know, your southern rock bands, uh, which they technically were, but they didn't sound like any southern rock band. There were the heavy metal bands, which they weren't really either. And and those were your, you know, probably the two main two main strains that were getting a, a fair amount of attention. And no one had sort of broken through with, like, independent music or punk rock or anything like that at that point. And the I mean, the stuff like Iggy Pop was considered pretty, you know, left field, and the New York Dolls were considered, you know, just sort of a an anomaly, and they weren't selling a lot of records either. So, you know, you had basically the the hard rock groups, the southern rock groups, and then you had everything else, which was a very small part of the of what was getting played on radio, what was getting purchased. I mean. A band like Little Feet came out to very little fanfare and applause during this the same period, and it took them a while. It took them three albums to to really, you know, find an audience because there wasn't that much of a of a uh, an opportunity for someone to do something different back then. It was very limited. Right. Yeah. You had like Badfinger, but they had a lot of issues business issues and you had the raspberries but they didn't really have any of the um they had a very different image and style than big star did so well, those bands, you know were basically 
pop bands who had, you know, hit singles, but they weren't finding followings among FM radio people very much because FM radio considered them to be top 40 bands. So mm-hmm. they were not, they were not embraced by, you know, the rock critics or, um, or the, the, you know, the, I mean, they, I think, you know, they sold some records, but mostly to people who listen to AM radio, not people who listen to FM radio. And I don't think Ardent Records had the, the kind of budget that would allow them to penetrate AM radio at that point. And they also had a band that wasn't really playing a lot live, so they couldn't use that avenue as the way to promote their group. It was very difficult for them, and they what they did find was that a lot of critics liked the music of, of Big Star, even though there was no... Uh, the, I mean, power pop wasn't really a term back then. You know, I mean, if it was, it, was, it wasn't widely used. So they decided that what they wanted to do was just to get as many critics to extol the virtues of Big Star. So they uh, asked me if they if I'd help them run a, a rock writers convention in Memphis. And that sounded like a great idea to me. So I, I got on board and I helped them put it together. So how did that rock writers convention work? Well, John King had the idea to do it and he got stacks to fund it, which was, it was pretty expensive. It was like, a, I think a quarter of a million dollars to get everybody there and put them in hotels and, and stuff like that, but you know, in the long run, it was money well spent because they didn't really think that this was going to be something necessarily just limited to Big Star. Because Big Star, by the time that the Rock Riders Convention was happening, had broken up. There was no Big Star. It was Alex was working on a solo record. Chris had gotten into a big fight with him and uh, wasn't actively doing music and. There was no big star band, but what happened was uh, the critics came down there. You know, Alex was doing interviews with some of them, and and he realized, hey, there's all these critics here. They love big star. They want to see me perform, and I don't have another band to perform with. Why don't I just do a a show with big star as a three-piece? Because there was a showcase night with, like, Skin Alley playing and a few other artists playing. So that's what happened. At the last minute, uh, Big Star rehearsed and decided that they were going to play the uh, the Rockwriters Convention. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an easy thing because first Alex had to be convinced to do it and he was, he was you know, sitting on the fence because he was not overwhelmed with what Big Star had achieved at that point. So he didn't really think that, you know, that doing a, a a big star performance would necessarily lead to anything. And the band had, for all intents and purposes, broken up. So, you know, I, me and John King sat with him and, you know, said, look, you know, we've got, you know, all these critics here at one place and one time. If you perform for them, you know, he was doing... Uh, interviews to promote his his new recordings that were going to be an Alex Chilton solo record and and 
those tracks ended up on uh, Radio City because after he did the performance, he decided, well, if all these critics are into into Big Star, maybe there is a future for the group after all. So, you know, first we had to convince him to do the show, and then he had to come to the conclusion that uh, doing doing a second Big Star record made some sense. I mean, I was 17, 18 years when this was old, when this was all happening. So it's a bit of a blur to me now, and at the time it was just sort of overwhelming that that this was happening. Right. And so September Girls ends up coming out of that, which is you know one of the most seminal power pop songs, probably. Except what I'm confused about is, so, you know, Big Star are kind of legendary now but when a lot of these guys were making the power pop music that you know kind of turned into a craze in the late 70s early 80s how many of those guys would have even been aware of big star at that time were 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 they were they even they weren't even very widely known at all at that point were they no they had a cult following though i mean i remember in 1975 going out to California. I was working for Chess Records in 1975. And I went out to California and uh, Kim Fowley invited me to see a showcase uh, or a rehearsal of his group, The Runaways, which at that point was a three-piece band that Joan was fronting. There was, there was no lead singer. And uh, and Michael, Michael Steele was the bass player who later formed the Bangles. So it was a whole different group, but they were thinking of cutting back of a car when they were doing the runaway stuff. I think they rehearsed it probably. So, I mean, there was, there was definitely some sort of awareness of Big Star. It just wasn't, it was, it was very culty. I mean, all the people who, who were into Big Star formed bands. Right. I mean, it was like, you know, the guys from, you know, Chris Stamey and Peter Holzapple and Mitch Easter, you know, that whole contingent, they were into Big Star. You know, there were the, you know, the few people in, in Memphis like Tommy Hohen and the Scruffs, they were aware of Big Star, but there was not a, a great awareness of, of the group at that time. I mean, it was just, they were sort of seen uh, as something, you know, really not on the radar. So, can you tell me about Chris Bell? You worked a lot with him, right? He was working closely with you when you were recording the pre-songs, right? Well, yeah, that was that was later. Um, what happened was I went down to Memphis in um, in 1975 initially to to produce Alex's stuff, and that was a bit of a debacle because Alex was not in really good shape when we did it. So uh, the results were, you know, sort of spotty. I, I thought we had moments where we really nailed some things, and there were things that I, I felt like were just not really that great, but, you know, they were, you know, sort of interesting. But he was into a, a music that, you know, Dan Penn ref- refers to it as uh, Alex's ugly music because mm-hmm. Alex um, had a love for you know music that was not 
necessarily pop by any stretch of the imagination or pleasing to the ear. You know, he he liked the uh, you know he, I mean the the demos he sent me of the Walking Dead and Take Me Home and Make Me Like It were pretty much uh, like spoken word with you know like a drum machine and and but a very primitive drum machine and and it, it was not melodic you know it was you know closer to you know Lou Reed was doing on metal machine music or something like that it was not music that was looking for an audience it was sort of music that was looking to drive the audience away you know it was tough trying to get him to do the kind of record that i thought he needed to do at that point in time which was a you know a melodic rock record not that dissimilar from big star but i mean the third big star record for me was not really a big star record it was a it was an alex solo solo record trying to make the kind of music that i'm talking about that that's sort of deliberately obscure. So anyway, I, I completed those recordings, brought them back to New York, got turned down by every record company in New York, and they were all scratching their head and saying, well, you know, Alex uh, is not going to get a record deal based on his his reputation or anybody's guilt about him being screwed in the box tops or, you know, big star doesn't have enough of a cult to, to generate any interest. And so I enjoyed myself in Memphis overall. And I was, uh, 20 years old. It's sort of looking for my next move. So I returned to Memphis ostensibly to join Van Duren's band. Um, he had a band, that had uh, Jody Stevens and Chris Bell and uh, bass player Mike Brigadello. And he asked me to you know, come there, work with him, and uh, I could stay at his apartment. So that's what I did initially. By the time I got there, Jody was out of the band, and uh, John Hampton was playing drums. But I got to be in a band with Chris Bell, and we got pretty friendly because he's, a really nice guy and greatly talented and and I hadn't really met him before that trip so you know we were in the band together and eventually I felt like I was I was just not really necessary in the band so I I said well you know you don't really need me in this band because it's not you don't need another guitar player you got plenty of guitar players here so I knew Tommy Hohen from the previous recordings I had done with Alex. I brought Tommy in to do background vocals with his partner at that time, Rick Clark. So I had mentioned to Tommy that maybe we could work together and try to make some, you know, some new music together. So uh, we weren't in a position to put a band together. So what we did is we worked on the tapes we had. He had a bunch of songs that he had started and I had the tapes I had done with Alex. So I, uh, I put Tommy's voice on the songs that, uh, I had done with Alex and he, uh, he got me to help him finish writing the songs that he had started on his tapes. And that became pre once I, I got those finished, I returned to New York and lo and behold, I got interest in pre from two record companies. But unfortunately, 
the, the first one was Mercury Records. Uh, this woman, Anita Wexler, whose father was Jerry Wexler, the famous producer, was the A&R person there. She loved what we were doing and wanted to sign us. And we got to the point of having a first contract all laid out, got to my lawyer. We were working on the contract. And then uh, somebody from the promotion department got to hear the stuff. And they said, well, we can't get that on radio. That's That's obscure music. And so the Mercury deal fell apart. But at the same time, Columbia Records was interested. So they flew Tommy up from Memphis, and I put together a rhythm section. And so we did a showcase in the Columbia Studios uh, and recorded it. And they they offered us a record deal based on the fact that we would do one cover song, and I brought in a cover song written by Michael Brown from uh, The Left Bank and Stories that I, I really liked because he was a friend of mine. And they were all into it. And uh, I called Tommy at the hotel they were putting him up at to let him know that you know we had a record deal with Columbia and he had split town. He had seen a mouse in his room and it freaked him out and he decided that this wasn't going to happen and he decided just to go back to Memphis and try to work on his solo stuff without me. So that was pretty much the end of pre as an active unit. Although I put together uh, a couple of albums and singles and EPs so that people could hear the music. Cause I really believed in it. I thought it was really special and a lot of people agreed with me, but uh, not enough to, get it on a real label. Fortunately, uh, a little while later, I ran into the guys from Oric Records at a Jonathan Richmond concert, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're looking for artists for Oric Records who fit into our, our you know, our, our our genre of, you know, whatever whatever isn't Led Zeppelin is, is uh, on Oric Records. I said, well, we're, we're not Led Zeppelin. And so they said, okay, we'll give it a listen. What do you got? I said, oh, I got Alex Chilton. And they said, oh, we love Alex. So I said, great. And I said, I've got this group pre with uh, this guy, Tommy Hahn. They said, so we'll give them to us to listen to and let's see what happens. So I gave them a cassette of both of them, which I was carrying at the time. And they loved them. So all of a sudden we had a record deal. Unfortunately, it was with a, a label with, pretty much no money, offering us no money. Uh, the best they could do was to offer Alex uh, a plane ticket to New York and a place to put him up. So that that began Alex's uh, time in New York at Orc Records' behest. If the, if the pre-album had happened with a major label, would that have come out in, like, 76? Yeah, 76 or 77. I had a... Uh, I had a, a situation all set to go. I, I was friendly with Todd Rundgren, and he was going to produce us Damn. for the Mercury record. And, uh, you know, we had time blocked out. And then I had to call him and tell him that the deal fell apart. And he said, well, it's okay. I got this other guy that I'm, I'm going to make a record with instead. I've just been trying to schedule it. And uh, it was Meatloaf. <laughs> right. So... I think that that did a little better for him than Pre would have done, but that was the collapse of 
of my first rock and roll dream. You know, we were all set. We had a major label, major producer, and uh, it would have been very cool, but it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, I think it's safe to say if there had been a pre-record produced by Rundgren that came out in like 76, that would be a pretty legendary album at this point, <laughs> especially among people who are uh, fans of that kind of music from that era, you know. I mean, that would have been ahead of its time. It's interesting to call something like that ahead of its time because it, pre was kind of, in some ways, a throwback to 60s music, right? You know, I mean, pre for me was a combination of, you know, Tommy who was really into, you know, bad finger and stories and big star, you know, a lot of other things as well, but those were the, the major things that, you know, he was, he was listening to at the time. And I, I loved all those groups, but I also was into stuff that was a little harder at the time. And, uh, my guitar playing was, you know, I wanted to be, you know, Jeff Beck, Richie Blackmore, you know, that, that was, that was my, those were my guys that I, you know, I felt like I should be, you know, the next step beyond them. So I, I was, I think it would have been very, very interesting record, but it never came to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Michael Brown, who I think was an absolute genius and, um, that Becky's yeah. album. I even, I love that Becky's album too, that he did. Are those like the songs you were talking about that he, you said he had songs or something or you were going to well, do a song, song he wrote. Yeah. Well, he had a song that he wrote with Gary Hodgson, who was the other guy in the Beckys, mm-hmm. um, Moons and Fools. That was a beautiful song. I thought Tommy could just do a real gorgeous version of it. Cause he, he sounded a little bit like, you know, Ian Lloyd. I thought it would be a, a really good pairing and, Tommy thought that that was a good idea too, but it just didn't come to be, you know, unfortunately. Uh, Chris Bell uh, seems to have been incredibly gifted as well. Did you ever, did you write with him? Like, did you experience his writing process? No, I never no. wrote with him, but we worked in the studio together and in the band together. And, you know, Chris was a, a tormented soul. You know, he was, really, you know, at odds with a lot of things in his life that didn't seem to fit together, you know. Mm-hmm. He couldn't figure out life. So it was very difficult for him to to, to make the adjustment to being, uh, you know, a human being in a human body because he was, he only had one foot on the planet, you know. He was, he was really basically into a spiritual adventure. So I have I have the Are You Serious album, the Van Duren album, and I have Losing You to Sleep, the Tommy Hohen album. He actually used, did he use actual pre-recordings on that record? No. No? Yeah, he re-recorded uh, Girl. Uh, oh yeah, he changed the name, right? Yeah. You know I Love You Now, I think is yeah. the title of it. Yeah. Um, that was the only one, only thing that remained from our, our work together. Van Duren, you know, we were, uh, friends, our friends were still friends and I was trying to help him get a record deal when he had a group with Jody and, uh, I put him together with Andrew Oldham and they did some recordings together and we couldn't get anything going. And then finally, when, uh, 
I got more involved with the Orc Records thing, and they weren't really interested in Van because it was just too too pop for them. Um, but I started a, a label called Big Sound with uh, a couple people from Connecticut, one of whom was a, a thief and ended up ruining the label. But before he ruined it, we got to make the Are You Serious record, which was great. Yeah, you said there was a band that Chris Bell was in. Was that did that band have a name that you were in too, or was it just called Van Duren? Oh no, that was uh, originally it was called uh, the Baker Street Irregulars, and then when I joined, I suggested calling it Walk and Wall, and Van liked that, so that's what the band became. But it was back and forth between those two names for a couple of years. I don't think they ever did any recording. No, okay. But there there were some recordings that Van and Jody did with Chris at one point. Uh, but nobody seems to have those tapes, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. But those songs ended up on, on Are You Serious? I think it was uh, New Year's Eve was one of them. There's a... Yeah. There's another Tommy Hohen album called I Do Love the Light, I think. That seems to be incredibly rare. I don't have it on vinyl, but I've heard it, and it's really good. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about that record, but uh, there don't seem to be very many copies of it out there. Uh, I may have heard it, but I I don't really know that. You know, Tommy and I did not stay close after uh, after he split New York because I considered it a a betrayal right? because he, you know, I had worked my ass off in, in Memphis setting this thing up. And then I, I got two record companies interested and, you know, I, I think what happened was Tommy decided he didn't want to be part of a group. He wanted to be a solo artist. And so rather than take a deal with Columbia records where he'd be part of a group, he decided he was going to take a deal with London Records where he could be a solo artist. And I thought that was, you know, after all the time and, yeah. and effort I put into it, I didn't think that was too cool. So when when you were doing the Yankees, so that was during... So, I mean, looking back on it, there it seems like there was this craze for power pop in the late 70s and the early 80s and just an uh, infinite number of bands and so many... And so looking back it seems like a lot of that was because of the massive success of the knack but i don't know if that's actually how it worked out it seems like tons of people got signed after the knack became so huge it really didn't have any any bearing on us at all i'm i'm not sure whether they were after the yankees or during the yankees but i was not really aware of the knack um and i didn't really I didn't really like them or take them that seriously or anything like that, you know. Um, I I don't know that 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 was a factor at all. I think that the for me the only factor was, and I didn't really consider the Yankees to be a power pop band. Uh, right. I'm not a good enough singer to to pull that off. Um, I thought it was just a rock and roll thing that was just sort of left of center and and very influenced by uh you know r and B. I I mean I was covering you know Arthur Alexander and Motown songs and Larry Williams songs on it 
and that was that was where I was coming from, not you know trying to be the next big star or anything like that. Right. Because I didn't think that I I was enough of a singer in that you know I, I didn't have that clear tone and stuff like that to pull it off. And unfortunately, the the guy who produced that record really didn't have much of a feel for what I was trying to do with the record. So the Yankees record for me is is not one of my uh, my prouder moments. I don't I'm not a big fan of that record. But you know, I know some people like it, and I'm glad they do. But um, that was that was sort of a it was a very strange period in my life because the record got a tremendous amount of acclaim and actually sold a lot of copies. And right at that time, I was splitting with the record company and we were trying to do gigs and wherever we go, there were no records in the stores. Like they were deliberately trying to sabotage our, our efforts to promote the record. But at the same time, we were number one most added at Billboard first week out. And we were getting a lot of radio play and a lot of record companies wanted us at the time. But unfortunately, uh, Big Sound, the label that I founded, would not let me out of my contract. So I couldn't sign with anybody. And so like a year after, uh, after the record came out, I pretty much had disbanded the group and... Uh, was fortunate enough to get dragged to a party that uh, John Belushi was having for his film uh, Neighbors, a rap party for that. And I became uh, John's guitar teacher and we became very good friends. And John introduced me to Al Franken and Tom Davis. And so I ended up in a band with Franken and Davis for about three years in 1982, I think. Well, I also joined the Jim Carroll band before that. So there were, you know, I was getting work, which was nice. As as a musician, I I was sort of losing my my excitement over the record industry, but I was was still getting work. Yeah, those are some nice names. (laughs) What a life, (laughs) John. I mean, wow, yeah. I guess the Yankees probably gets, you know, lumped in with Power Pop more because of your previous connections. Just, you know, your name is... I mean, I don't know how aware of it you are, but there's a lot of kind of obsessive Power Pop people. So, well, the one thing I didn't ask you is what do you think of the term Power Pop and lumping things into that genre and uh, what do you think it means or how do you feel about that, that term or that genre? Well, I... I thought it, it, you know, I never was really that fond of it as a term because it was almost, it's almost like saying you're, you're, um, you're owing your, your existence to the Beatles if you're a power pop group. Um, or you're, you're, you're following in the footsteps of somebody else. And, you know, I've, I've tried to make music that was not, uh, extraordinarily derivative of, you know, it was obviously rooted somewhere, but I, I tried to make music that was like painting outside of the lines, but still stuff that people would like, you know, and, and power pop to me 
you know, a lot of those bands just sounded like they were trying to recreate the British invasion. And that's not something I really wanted to do. So I, I didn't, I never really aligned myself with the power pop scene and power pop fans to a great extent. I always thought that, you know, music was music and, you know, the more you put labels on it and try to put it in boxes, uh, you know, it limits what you're trying to do. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that you have to find a, a genre for these groups that are sort of non-mainstream, but uh, I don't think that the, the term really, uh, really applies to, to necessarily what I was trying to do. You know, I could see it for somebody like, you know, blue ash or, or, um, you know, uh, sneakers or the shoes or somebody like that but mm -hmm. i was do that do you mean with pre not really no i was i was trying to paint outside the line mm -hmm. yeah it you is know, I, um, I, it is yeah i mean it's confusing it's confusing to me too in terms of calling big star power pop and then calling um, like a band like 2020 or a lot of, because you get, once you get punk and new wave in there too, and it blurs the lines between all of that. And then what is the relation between Big Star and a lot of the stuff that happened like in the early 80s? So it, it does become confusing all the different styles that are kind of considered power pop. And then it even gets more convoluted in the 90s and you know you'll see people call everything from weezer to whatever power pop and then it just becomes any i guess any term well, like that gets bastardized eventually to the point where it doesn't mean anything well i just remember sitting with alex chilton in the uh in the waiting room at arden one day and saying i wanted to get you know tommy hohen and Rick Clark to to sing on his records and 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 Alex just sort of winced. I said, "Well, you don't like them," and and Alex said, "They're just pukes." And I said, "Pukes?" He says, "Yeah, they're just regurgitating the stuff that came before them." And I thought that was unfair, but I think that's the way a lot of people look at power pop. The whole idea of Big Star being a quote-unquote power pop band was more Chris Bell's idea and influence than Alex's. I think once Chris was out of the band, I think Alex tried to get as far from from that approach as possible and just try to make it his own singular approach to whatever he was trying to do, which you know was fine for Radio City, but. I think sort of went off the rails after that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you even referred to him as kind of intentionally alienating <laughs> people, which that is how it comes across sometimes. And not only with Alex, yeah, he, I mean, there's other artists that you could say the same thing about, but. 
Well, he he certainly didn't want to be power pop. That's yeah. the last thing he wanted. Well, thank you very much, John, for talking to me. It's been great. It's been very informative, and um, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad you uh, you got something out of it, and uh, I hope you find uh, I hope you find Van and, and do a great interview with him and. Uh, enjoy all the music because there's a lot of music out there that you know, a lot of different genres that's uh very very good despite the fact that we're living in difficult times there's still <laughs> yeah. people who are inspired to, to make stuff that's uplifting and i i uh i get a lot of joy from that talked to John Tivin and I asked him about this too about um, how many people in the 70s even knew who Big Star were right weren't they pretty obscure until they kind of had that renaissance in the 90s absolutely yeah they were they couldn't get arrested around here yeah. um, much like myself you know um, but um, yeah I mean uh, not a lot of people knew about them and they, they folded before they could really do anything long-term and hopefully capitalize on it. So they had to come back around. And, uh, when Jody and Alex put, uh, the Posies guys in the band in the early nineties and then suddenly, you know, people were like, wow, where did this music come from? You know, well, I haven't heard this before. You know, so that's a familiar story all across the board of, um, uh, not only in this that is genre of power pop, but uh, in every genre, there's undiscovered uh, artists who made make or made great records. Yeah, yeah. The the first that I became aware of Big Star was when a CD came out in the early '90s that had both of the first two albums on it, and that kind of became a right. big deal, you know. But I know that a lot of guys, like the guys from the DBs and like uh, Mitch Easter, and there were a lot of people um, before that, you know, that were into them. So it seems like they did get kind of rediscovered or discovered by some people in, I guess, the late 70s, early 80s. Well, you know, of course, the replacements had the song Alex Chilton and um, 
well, the Bengals did September Girls. So there were people that knew, I guess. But when they get treated as like a huge influence, um, it seems like they couldn't have been that big of an influence since not that many people were able to even get the records. Is But I'm not sure because I wasn't there, you know. Well, there was a lot, there were a lot of cassettes passed around in the seventies, and uh, you know, people like uh, the guys in REM, for instance. You can the first time I heard their very first record, I thought, "Oh my God, these guys are taking the big star thing and uh, making it," you know, very similar but with a Georgia slant on it, you know, and uh, and good for them. But you know, um, it's just it, there were little little uh, pockets of. Uh, influence you could tell when these records started coming out and uh certainly i was aware of big star from day one you know because i've been friends with jody for a really long time about 50 years before big star it goes back to the beatles really you know in terms of this kind of music and everybody who kind of you know narrowed their take on that maybe i don't know um yeah i mean there have been a lot of people replacements uh that's a good one right there um and, uh, you know, Matthew Sweet is another guy who obviously had his ear to the ground about Big Star, you know, yeah. in a good way, you know. So, and it goes on forever, you know, Bangles, sure, you know. Yeah, you knew Jody before he joined Big Star, so so you were, you know, you witnessed the whole formation of the band and, and everything, right? I would say from a peripheral view because mm-hmm. I was not really Jody and I were acquainted uh, and uh, we we're both 16 or so and um, we kind of were doing different things with different sets of musicians you know but um, uh, but when the first Big Star album came out I knew that uh, through a mutual friend that they were working on something at this new studio uh, which turned out not to be it was only the newest version of Arden but um, uh, and then when I finally heard it in 71 I was just completely floored you know, I mean, wow, just the, the production and the sound of it was just startling. It sounded like it came out of England, you know, out of Abbey Road. So uh, I was I was really uh, interested in that. And then uh, Jody and I kind of got reacquainted um, in the early 70s and, you know, had a patch from there. But, yeah, I, I was completely uh, blown away by both the big star albums. And when the second one came out, I was just uh, really stunned because it was so different from the first one, you know, in a good way. You know? Yeah, the production, the the sound of the records are, I guess for the time, it was pretty impressive uh, considering it wasn't the, a, on a big label, didn't have, what, you know, what, but Alex Chilton had a history. It seems like uh, the mixture of Alex and Chris Bell was where the real magic was, right? Because you had these kind of two very different personalities and two different styles, but the combination. Yes, and, and the tension uh, between those things and the uh, competition, all of those things were wrapped up in that, you know. And they were those records, I've always thought back then and now, uh, that those records were certainly out of time, you know. They didn't relate to a lot of what else was going on at the time, you know. And uh, and that's that's something that really sets them apart, you know. Yeah, it seems like what comes to be uh, called power pop later is, in a lot of ways, at least a lot of it was a throwback to the 60s, 
but at the same time, they all those guys experienced the 70s, so they couldn't help but have been influenced by what happened in the 70s. So I think that you get like more intricate melodies and maybe you know maybe more d- uh, different styles coming together but but with like a 60s inspiration to it cuz in the 70s it seems like what happened was that it kind of tempo is slowed down and um you know you get everything like progressive rock and a lot of heavier music so power pop mm-hmm. is more up tempo and more have more of a 60s feel but still still influenced by what happened in the 70s you know what i mean yeah i mean you know i think certainly in the case of uh, uh alex and chris and the guys um they were really heavily influenced by all of the 60s uh groups especially the beatles and the beach boys that was your jumping off point but but by saying that it was in no way an imitation and you know a lot of the big star material uh whether it was slower songs or or the up-tempo rockers, it was all based on an incredible set of guitar sounds and drum sounds. It really was. That was the explosive jumping-off point for those records and that style. That's what really people like me, uh, who was li- when I was listening to that, that's one of the first things that really stunned me. I mean, the vocals were great, too, and the harmonies and everything, very lush, beautiful, but... Those guitar sounds, you know, a lot of that's Chris Bell, uh, certainly on the first record, and um, that was that's really one of the things that, that struck me the hardest is, uh, you know, being, you know, a progression, a beautiful progression from where the '60s were. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you said competition. Was do you th- was Chris? Was that more Chris trying to compete with Alex? Well, you have to think about Alex already being somewhat famous, mm-hmm. you know, because of the box tops. Yeah. And uh, and the flip side of that was Chris was far more talented as a writer and as a, a player, you know, and as a producer, engineer. Alex learned along the way. And uh, they, in a way, they kind of balanced each other out. But it was also, from what I, I understand, it was like oil and water, too. So it was like up and it was down and, you know. Uh, there were there were issues and there were uh, you know I'm sure I know that there were times of exultation hearing you know what they were doing you know themselves and uh, experiencing that so that's like any group of people you know some people get along and sometimes they don't and, you know that's just what it is yeah well I mean it seems like Alex was a hard person to get along with <laughs> at least at times and. Chris was, yes, he was. Yeah, <laughs> and Chris was struggling with a lot of a lot of things, right? So, yeah, you worked with Chris pretty much right after Big Star, right? Yeah, sort of. I mean, uh, Chris and I kind of Jody introduced us in late nineteen seventy four. This was after uh, they had uh, Alex and Jody had recorded and mixed the third album and then they kind of fell apart, you know, went separate ways and Jody and I were trying to do something that he brought in Chris and it took about a year because Chris would to first get anything going because Chris was, uh, uh, traveling. He was leaving, he was in Europe and, uh, mainly England, uh, 
for most of that next year, 74 and 75, working on a solo material. So we discussed putting a band together, and when we finally came back home to Memphis um, in 75, we late that year, we finally got together and started uh, working on a live band, you know, to go out and play his music, big star music, uh, some, some of Jody's stuff, stuff Jody and I had written together and my solo stuff. So it was uh, quite a band that lasted about five or six months. And then, you know, the, as, as you know, that time frame would suggest, disco was coming in. And it was really hard to work a, a live rock and roll band in this town uh, at the time. So uh, we kind of split and went our different ways, you know. Yeah. So Chris was, uh, he was pretty much a genius, right? I mean, it seems like it. He was a natural yeah. He was a natural. He was also a, a tough person to uh, know sometimes. Mm-hmm. Not always, but sometimes. Uh, he was uh, seemed a little mercurial, you know, uh, at times. But uh, there's no doubt he was a really talented uh, musician and producer and songwriter, you know. And I enjoyed it. I was At the time, I was the bass player in the band. So many a night I would be, uh, you know, I'm standing there playing with Chris and Jody, and the fourth member was Mike Brignardello, who has been a had moved from Memphis to Nashville decades ago, and he's one of the top uh, session bass players up there. But I'd be standing on stage with these guys playing that material and watching Chris play guitar, and that was an education for me, let me tell you, even as a bass player. I was a guitar player too, but you know, you get my point. I'm playing bass, and I'm watching what Chris is doing, so... Uh, it was it was really uh, going, like going to school in a lot of ways. Yeah, and then like "I Am the Cosmos" is especially for the time. It's such a special song. I mean, it's so it's such a beautiful song, and so different, kind of different, you know. It's very heartbreaking. I thought so the first time I heard it. The first time I heard it was in Ardent in, a, in Studio B, where Chris was uh, mixing. I put mixing in quotes because he was always mixing. He was never done, <laughs> and uh, and I understand that that concept. But yeah, uh, one day I met him over there, and uh, I could hear when I came in the front door I, of the of the building, I could hear his music coming out of Studio B with the the double doors closed. It was that loud, and um, it's just the way he liked it. But I heard that song, and I just completely I, I was speechless. I didn't know what to, what to say. It was so beautiful and so, you know, tough, you know, in a way. Gosh. So, I mean, I can't say enough about that. And, you know, and when we finally parted ways and he continued working on his uh, solo material and, you know, playing live with some other people around here, and I, I eventually ended up in the Northeast uh, the next year. But um, I always, uh, from then on, I always put one or two of his songs in, in my live set. You know, no matter where I was, because I just felt like somebody had to hear this. Now, you got to understand, this is in the 1970s, so nobody had heard of Big Star, much less Chris Bell. Right. But I just loved his material uh, so much that I just, you know, I thought, well, this is at least some small way people can hear this. You know, so still do this, a couple of things to, uh, today, all these years later. Right. Yeah, I actually um, a couple of years ago. I went to Ardent and uh, Jody gave my friend and me a like a tour and um 
that was pretty great. But it must look a lot different now than it did back then, huh? Yeah, I mean, back in the seventies, you know, the 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 C studio on the back of the building was not even there. That part of the building didn't exist. It was just uh, A and B, and uh, and the B studio, the smaller of the two, was reversed. Originally, the control room was where the uh, studio floor is now, and vice versa. So back when we recorded there, uh, and when Big Star did, so. Yeah, but uh, it's a beautiful place. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it's still uh, up and going. It must be weird how, for you, it was just kind of a local place back then, and now it's become such a legendary place. You know, for it's it must yeah. be weird. Well, I mean, you know, that's a, that was a long journey for them. They they started yeah. getting uh, national acts in there almost immediately, and. Uh, you know, of course, all almost all of the ZZ Top records were done there. And, uh, you know, uh, over the years, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and his brother Jimmy and you know, and a lot of uh, R&B records were done there, as well as, you know, all the, the rock groups that have come through there. Led Zeppelin Three was mixed there. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I could go on and on forever. Uh, so it was, it, it's... Not a surprise walking in there now is it is different because a lot of the people are not there anymore, you know, or not anywhere anymore. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that that Arden was successful, um, and that's completely because of John Fry. Yeah, were you around Arden a lot, like in seven, like in '75? Were you hanging around a lot? Yeah, that was my major exposure garden back in those days because Jody and I, uh, at the same, right, right before Chris uh, hooked up with Jody and I in like, you know, uh, late 75, uh, 74, uh, Jody and I started writing songs together. And uh, so part of that deal was for he and I to do some demos, song demos um, at Arden, which we did in the spring of uh, 75. And uh, we did four songs and um, started shopping around to uh, people, labels, whatever we could think of. Jody had the connections there. Certainly I didn't. Uh, that was my first uh, working experience at Ardent. And uh, it was it was great. You know, the great Richard Rosebro was the engineer. And, you know, my goodness. Um, and so that was how, we, how I got connected with John Tibben because he's one of the people that uh, Jody sent a cassette to for those first demos. And one thing led to another, and John uh, was working at the time with Andrew Oldham um, in a studio in Connecticut doing the Metamorphosis uh, Stones record. And um, so Andrew got interested in us and decided he and his partner wanted to manage us so he came down in November of 75 and did another set of demos at Arden with us, with him producing. Uh, and then, you know, over the next few months, as we, Jody and Chris and I were playing together, and that started coming unraveled, uh, Andrew kind of came, came unraveled, too. So uh, it came to nothing except that I was still in touch with John Tibben in, in, in 77. That's what led me to the Northeast, where he had started an uh, independent label connected with that same studio that they were doing metamorphosis in in 75 so right and and so you make uh your first album are you serious which which comes out in 77 and so that's a i mean if if we're talking about the power pop craze uh 
you know, that's that's kind of before it all happens when your record comes out. So it's a very early example of kind of what what people call power pop. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we, we recorded it in 77. It came out in early 78, but that's just technicality. Yeah, it's the same time frame, yeah. Yeah, I have the vinyl, and mine says seventy-seven on it. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's the copyright. But it was it, it, by the time they pressed it and got it out, it was March of seventy-eight. So, right, uh, only a few months difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know. I saw somewhere. I know. I saw somewhere you talk about Emmett Rhodes. You could definitely hear the Emmett Rhodes influence on some of your songs. Uh, well, yeah, among among many, yeah. yeah. It's there. He he was he's he was a good guy. I was really was very sad to see him go. But um, did you he know was, Emmett? Uh, kind to me. The, the, I, I met him in the early nineties in L.A. and he and a mutual friend of ours uh, who introduced me to him. Spent a couple of days in a home studio attempting to write together, and it was basically we got nothing written, but we were completely worn out from you know hilarious laughing for two days <laughs> um he, he was a great guy and i didn't know him well i just had a couple of days with him but uh we really connected you know during that time and it was really sweet and very uh very educational because he was very at the time at least and probably the rest of his life i'm guessing very cynical about the record business and about you know making records period yeah yeah he, like many others, got completely screwed by the record industry. Yeah, it was impossible, you know, to to do record, make records the way he was doing it at, at his parents' uh, garage, doing everything, and uh, he signed a deal for two albums a year, and it took him nine months to do the first one, so you can see where that's going. Yeah, you know? yeah but that but first... He just, you know, the... threw up his hands and walked away, eventually, you know, so... Yeah, that first record is so brilliant. Like every song, it's crazy, and it's so crazy that he did it all himself. I agree. I agree. It certainly turned my head around when I was that came out when I was sixteen. So uh, that happened, and then a few months later, I met Jody. So right. that was kind of interesting timing there, you know. And I had a lot of other influences too. I mean, I could go on and on, but uh, you know, Emmett certainly, you know. His record came out before the McCartney album did, where McCartney was doing all the instruments. And at the time, I didn't understand that he was already doing that on some of the Beatles records, too, like the White Album, you know, for instance. But And so it really, uh, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be that guy, you know, playing all the instruments and all that. But it, it made me really think in a different way about writing and, and recording, you know. So it definitely all those guys were big influences Todd Rundgren too big time right so when you make Are You Serious is that kind of a culmination like are those is that a collection of songs that you know went back went pretty far back or or was were those all written more for that record well it's about half and half Uh, the the oldest songs in Are You Serious were written uh, with Jody at the end of uh or for that project at the end of 74. So it's like 74 into halfway, until we were in the studio in 77. Some of the uh, two or three of the songs that I recorded for that record, I actually finished them in, stu- in the studio, but the label didn't know that. 
I just acted like I knew what I was doing. So you know, <laughs> nobody knew, knew, nobody was the wiser. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was like about, you know, four years, three and a half years of material. I'd been writing all, all, all the while since I was a teenager before that, but none of that stuff was even remotely uh, acceptable. It just wasn't good enough. It was a running curve. And did you work pretty closely with John Tiven in making that album? Yeah, it was uh, John and I and uh, the co-producer, Doug Snyder. He's a musician and uh, also a huge record collector. And uh, and then the in- studio engineer, Richard Robinson, uh, was responsible for getting it sound sound the way it did. I mean, uh, it was a 16-track studio, one studio, hole-in-the-wall building, you know. But we, Richard was the house engineer, so he knew, he kind of got it. He knew what we were trying to do. And, of course, we had our input, John and I and Doug, together on the guitar sounds and uh, some of that some of that aspect of it. But uh, uh, and John played lead guitar, I think, I think six of the 13 songs. And Doug played bass on a couple of them. And I played, and then Hilly Michaels played drums, and uh, I played all the rest. Yeah, and, and so John and Tommy Hohen and you, you know, they had pre, and then and then Tommy had, I have the Losing You to Sleep album too, but um, it seems like, so it seems to me, when you guys were doing that kind of music at the time you were, that wasn't really what anybody else was doing. And then it kind of comes back around a few years later. Is that kind of how it worked, or...? I guess you could say that. I mean, you know, we weren't, I, I should just speak for myself. I, I didn't know Tommy very well at all in the seventies. We were just barely acquainted. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I met him is when he came in, uh, he was hanging around ardent when Andrew Oldham came into town. Jody introduced me to a guy. He wanted to play piano on, on one of the songs. He said, this is Tommy Holland. That's the first time I ever met Tommy. I didn't see him again for for a few years. Uh, but uh, I was kind of peripherally aware of what he was doing, and yeah, it was kind of in the same sort of vein, you know. And I, speaking for myself and probably for Tommy, we didn't think about what was popular. Right. You know, it didn't occur to us. You know, I don't think the big star guys did either. They weren't, you know, making making one move or the other because they thought, man, this is really going to sell, you know.
That was Van Duren's song New Year's Eve from his 1977 album Are You Serious? I'm going to leave you with one last song, and this one is pretty mind-blowing. This is Alex Chilton performing live on WYLX Radio in 1975, and I think you will recognize the song that he is covering, the original of which had just come out two years earlier. back into the lovesick blues boy business. If I should stay, I would only be in your I know I'll think of you each step of the way and I Above all 